Father God, thank you uh, for the privilege of having your word in our hands. Father, thank you that all scripture is God-breathed. And Father, as we come to this book that's often seen as quite tricky, Father, we pray that you'd uh, open our eyes to your truth. Father, pray you'd help us as we look into your word to understand more about you, more about your son, the Lord Jesus, and what it means to follow him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Christianity is about a personal relationship with God. Or is it? Sometimes Christianity can feel anything but, can't it? Uh, For some parts in Christianity and some strands, strands, you'd be tempted to think the opposite, in fact, wouldn't you? For some, you have a relationship with a priest who has a relationship with a bishop, who then has a relationship with an archbishop, who then has a relationship with the Pope, who has a relationship with the saints, who has a relationship with Mary, who has a relationship with Jesus, who has a relationship with the Father. Doesn't sound very personal, does it? It's even more than that sort of average seven degrees of separation uh, that they reckon for us as human beings. But even within evangelical circles of Christianity, God can feel distant. It's hard to think of our relationship with God in terms of a relationship, really. When we think about God and his awesome holiness, when we think about our daily experience of sin, when we think about God as our awesome creator, and then we think of ourselves as mere human beings, it can almost seem like we're worlds apart, can't it? And in many senses, we'd be right. How can we as sinful people have a relationship with a holy God? How can we as mere creatures have a relationship with our incredible creator? And that's what the book of Leviticus was written to answer. How can we as fallen human beings have real fellowship with God? Now, if you were with us last week, we saw that the first part of the answer is sacrifice. It required sacrifices to be made. And not just one, there were five that were to be offered regularly in the life of the average Israelite to deal with the problems caused by sin. If you remember, we had that story of the man who was friends with a great lord, but who accidentally trespassed on his land, damaged his property, and in the process got covered in manure. We saw that he had five problems. He'd broken the law, he damaged the property, he'd made himself filthy, the Lord now doubts his loyalty, and worst of all, the Lord will now longer, no longer meet with him as his friend. And we saw last time how in Leviticus those sacrifices are given to deal with our problems that are similar to his. The burnt offering, we saw last time, was there to deal with God's wrath, taking God's wrath at the offence that we had made against him. The grain offering was there to pledge allegiance to God, to thank him uh, and to praise him for who he is. The sin offering was there to cleanse us from our uncleanness uh, and our sin. Uh, The guilt offering was there to repay the Lord for, for injury against him, if you like, almost like a compensation offering in the way that we haven't given God what was due. And then the peace offering was there to enjoy fellowship with God as the priest and the worshipper alike would share in the sacrifice. All the other sacrifices, it either was totally destroyed or only the priest could eat of it. For the peace sacrifice, the worshipper could join in as well. This was like the end of those sacrifices. It wasn't just that they were there for forgiveness. Forgiveness was actually there to take them to fellowship 
with God. That was the end of it. That was the central sacrifice in the end. But this week we see that sacrifices alone in them and of themselves are not enough. In fact, sacrifices can never be alone because actually, as our first point says, sacrifices must have a priest. What we have in the section uh, that follows, uh, that we, it's just before the section that we read before in chapter 6, we get a repeat of the sacrifices that we had last time. Now please don't worry, I'm not going to go through them in detail again. Um, but if you want to hear more about what those sacrifices were exactly, have a listen to last week's talk. It's there uh, on our website. But what we have here is the same sacrifices, but from the priest's perspective. Last time we were looking at them as worshippers. What did we have to do? Now it moves to what the priest should be doing. And extra details are given that would matter to the priest. So the burnt offering, for example, uh, we see it there in uh, Leviticus uh, 6, 8 and following. It's pretty much a repeat of what was said before, but then we have these extra details, like that part of their job was to keep the fire burning. Part of their job was that the fire would be there, but part of their job as priests was that they were to keep it going. The fire, as we'll see, is started by God himself. It's not the priest's job to start the fire. It all sounds like a Billy Joel song, doesn't it? <laughs> I should say it out loud. But it was the priest's job to keep it going. Now, people have tried to work out whether this was positive or negative, you know, with the priests uh, keeping it going. Is the fire a good thing? Is it the fire uh, of God's presence that's always burning? Is it the fire of God's anger that's always burning? And as we'll see later on, actually, it's both. So the, the, the extra details there are for the priests to, to know what they're to be doing. The grain offering to pledge allegiance to God. We see a new twist there in chapter 6, that this is to become an offering for the priest's ordination. The priests are regularly to commit and recommit themselves to God. We had that Pledge of Allegiance before, didn't we? Uh, I didn't know that was coming, but that was sort of their daily thing that they had to do. I mean, the soldiers just do it once, don't they, I think? I've never been in the, the military. But they would have to do it twice a day, morning and evening, pledge their allegiance to God. They were for him. This was their personal commitment, so to speak, by the priests to God. We are on your side, morning and evening, every day. The sin offerings there again, to deal with the pollution and the guilt offering to pay for the offences against God. They're just given details of what the priest must do. Then we have the peace offering. That's there in chapter uh, 7. The peace offering was about renewing fellowship with God. Enjoying fellowship with God and his people. Some extra bits here that we find out is that although they were allowed to eat the sacrifice, they were allowed to take it away... There was only a limited amount of time in which they could eat it in. Now, it's unlikely that it's a hygiene thing. You know, I think most people in the Middle East would understand if you keep meat for a number of days. Probably not going to be that nice to eat. Um, you know, even generally quite, uh, you know, obvious to most people that meat rots if you leave it. It's more likely that this idea of a limit of time in which they could eat it was, was really about two things. First, it was to avoid people using the food as like a lucky charm. So imagine, if this was the only sacrifice you could take away, there might be a temptation to think, well, I'll hang on to it. This could be my sort of lucky charm. There are similar provisions made in the Church of England with communion, which is, I believe, why the vicar is really supposed to finish off the wine uh, at the end of the communion service so that nobody can take it away and sort of use it as a lucky charm. Same with the bread. So it's to avoid that sort of superstition that might be surrounding uh, those ideas. 
But second, it seems also to encourage hospitality. They would burn a whole animal. They would have it cooked. And that's a lot to eat in a day or two. I mean, think Christmas isn't that far away. We struggle to eat a turkey in our family and sort of not have bits left over for the chicken curry, the turkey curry and turkey sandwiches. And But it's an encouragement to hospitality. If you're doing such a big sacrifice, it would be an encouragement to share with other Israelites what you had. Sharing the thanksgiving that you're giving. It would make it more of a community event, really, rather than a personal devotional. I mean, could you imagine sort of calling in someone to have a hog roast for one? You know, you bring up the company, yeah, I'd like a hog roast. Oh, how many people will be there? Oh, it's just me. You know, that's, uh, yeah, I'm just really hungry. <laughs> it's, it's not. Now, obviously, if you were watching the slides before, they couldn't have a hog roast. Uh, we'll find out exactly why next week. But it, it was to encourage them to, to share it with other people. They were to enjoy this together as a community. But the important thing, really, through the whole section of 6 and 7, is that they could not present the sacrifices themselves. The worshippers were not allowed to present them by themselves. They could not approach God by themselves. They needed go-betweens. They needed not just sacrifices, but a mediator. They needed someone to stand between uh, them and God. I remember when I was a student, I lived in a student house. There were eight of us in the house. Now, if you can imagine what sort of difficulties there are with relationships if one person falls out with someone else. There was a point in the house where I think I was the only person that would speak to all uh, seven other people in the house. And my role effectively became mediator. So, you know, well, couldn't you tell... uh, I'll I'll change their name. Can you tell Peter that, uh, you know, I've got a problem with where he's keeping his uh, things in the fridge? And I basically had to act as a go-between. But here, it's, it's deliberate. We're there with a go-between. A mediator will go between us and God. We can't approach God ourselves, so we need someone to stand in between. So who were these mediators? Well, most religions have them, if you think about it. They have sort of priestly roles as well as sacrifices. In the Near Eastern religions of Moses' day and beyond, actually, there were quite often women uh, the, the mass majority of priests would actually be priestesses. So if you sort of do a Google of sort of ancient religions, you'll see that actually priestesses had much more of a role. Partly, though, that was because for most people in the Near East, religion was linked with prostitution. The priestesses were actually prostitutes who worked at the temple. Men would be in, often be in powerful positions, but women would make up most of the people on the ground. They would often have stories about how their priesthood descended from a god in some way. They were special, holy people, sort of cut above the rest. You would come to the temple to sort of twist God's arm to give you something by uh, dealing with his favourites, deal with the priests, give them uh, nice sacrifices. You'd offer food or money, and then often you'd sleep with a temple prostitute to gain favour. You know, if you wanted a good harvest or fertile animals or, or children, if you couldn't have children. Communion in, in the sort of understanding, fellowship, if you like, with God in, in their understanding in the Near East was sex with one of his prostitutes. There would be female and male prostitutes too. It was a big debauched affair. That was how priests mediated. You had uh, relationships with them uh, and then you ate the food on, they ate the food, sorry, that you'd offer to them. So do you see how what we have presented in Leviticus is totally different? Yes, there are sacrifices, but do you notice in 6 and 7, there are no arm-twisting sacrifices? 
They are sacrifices dealing with sin. Not with harvests or fertility or anything like that. They're not there to twist God's arm in the way that people would be used to. And yes, there are priests, but they're totally different from the temple prostitutes that people would normally understand as priests. And we see that in chapter 8. Because the priests, the sacrifices must have priests, but then the priests must have sacrifices. We had chapter 8 read earlier, so we won't uh, read bits of it again. But chapter 8 deals with the sacrifices that must be made for Aaron and his sons. They are to be special priests, but do you notice that they're not special people? Yes, they're descended from Aaron, but they don't claim to be descended from God. And Aaron's obedience, well, if you think back to Exodus with the golden calf, it's been so-so, to put it lightly. Remember, it was him that organised that whole golden calf affair. Having him as your high priest, and said, oh, I'm descended from him. In that sense, he's already acted as a priest, but not for God. And they're so unspecial that they have to have sacrifices made for them. Seven days of sacrifices to set them apart. And what's it doing? Dealing with their sin. They weren't a cut above the rest. Actually, they needed sacrifices for sin as well. They were given garments to cover their bodies and sacrifices to cover their sin. They had to wear a sort of special label on the turban that was put on their head. It's referred to as the crown in the passage that we had read earlier. Placed on their heads. And it would say, holy to the Lord. It's sort of labelled with it. Just in case there was any doubt. They weren't really, in, in that sense, holy to the Lord by themselves. They had to have a label uh, put on their heads. That's what it's referred to in verse 9. They're washed with and anointed with oil. The same oil that's used to anoint the tabernacle itself. They're presented as holy as God, to holy to God. But a bit like if you were here for our series on Romans, we have that label righteous to God written on our heads, so to speak. If God labels as it, then that's true, despite any evidence otherwise. But it's imputed to us, it's given to us. Theirs too here is an imputed holiness, if you like. It comes from outside of them. They're not holy in and of themselves. God is giving them that status as holy. But even with all that, even with all these uh, washings and all these sort of clothes and things, They're not enough. Sacrifices must be made for them. And Moses performs the sacrifices that God ordained in the previous chapters for them. Sin offerings and burnt offerings. Cleansing from the pollution of sin and dealing with God's anger at it. And in addition, there's an additional ordination sacrifice. Which is, if you look at it, it's a sort of cross between a burnt offering and a sin offering. A ram was to be killed and its blood smeared. Not on the altar, as with other sin offerings, but on Aaron and his sons. Blood was to be smeared on his right ear, right thumb, and the right big toe. As though sort of setting him apart rather than the temple. The rest of the blood was splashed against the sides of the altar. The fatty parts of the ram were then taken out along with the right thigh and some bread. All these were passed to Aaron and his sons and they were to present them as a wave offering. This is the first time we meet a wave offering in Leviticus. No one's entirely sure what it's about uh, or what exactly meant with a wave offering. It's probably as it sounds that they would pick it up and wave it. 
But there's all sorts of debates about did they wave it up and down? Did they wave it left and right? Did they sort of, you know, wave it all over? With the symbolism, it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? But we're not told. But it's meaning that figuratively it's offered to God. And then Moses was to burn up all that was left like the burnt offering. But the breast was for Moses. He was to wave that, but it was his keep. As with most of the sacrifices, the one who makes them got to keep part of the sacrifice. And then Moses was to sprinkle Aaron and his sons and their clothes with a mixture of anointing oil and blood from the sacrifice. The sin and uncleanness now is covered and atoned for, and now they have a new status. Holy to the Lord, as it said on their uh, hat, if you like, on their turban. Set apart for his service. And by the end of chapter 8, the the Levite priesthood has been established. Now, this passage has much more to say about priests, but it's worth pausing here and noting that just like last week, when we looked at the sacrifices, there are some pretty crazy rabbit holes we can go down here as we look at these sacrifices for the priests. Because if you think about it, as a church, globally, having done away with priests in the New Testament... We sort of gradually reintroduce them over time. Just as we saw last week with the language and practice of the temple and the tabernacle was reintroduced to the church with parish churches like the one in Otley laid out east to west like the tabernacle. So too the language of priests sort of comes back into the church over time. Instead of the language of overseer or elder which is used in the New Testament, the church gradually started to use the language of priests. If you think about it, I suppose it's sort of a package deal, isn't it, in a way? You know, temples, well, if you've got temples, they come with priests who make sacrifices on altars. And all this language has come back into the church at various points. Later on, we're going to share bread and wine to remember Jesus' death on the cross for us. But in a Catholic church, this is done as a sacrifice by a priest, not on a table, but on an altar. That's the language that they use. But it's not used in the New Testament of what we do. But it's not just one part of the church that gets it wrong. In some parts, whoever leads the music acts as priest. The role of priest, if you like, is to bring people into God's presence. That's what it's about, fellowship. How often do you hear in big gatherings, band leaders say things like, let's come into God's presence now. In some circles, the understanding really is that we meet with God as we sing along to music. The guitarist is our mediator mediating God's presence and woe betide that a string should break because then we can't meet with God anymore but worship in Leviticus is bringing a sacrifice to God in obedience response to what he's revealed and the New Testament speaks of the whole of our life as worship we're to offer the whole of ourselves as a living sacrifice that's what it says in Romans 12 verse 1 now that includes singing praises to God But it's not even close to the whole of our life, is it? That's just something that we do for part of our life. But before we get too down on our charismatic and Roman Catholic friends, what about us as evangelicals? Can we reintroduce the Old Testament priesthood? I think in certain ways we can. One of the ways that we do it is we treat our pastors as priests. One example of that, for example, I, I quite often get asked to pray uh, for people, I know the pastors do too. Now, that's not wrong in itself. But if you think that by asking me to pray for you, there's some sort of special blessing that I can bestow as a pastor, then you're wrong. 
I am not your priest. My prayers are only as powerful as yours. True, in James 5, the elders are told to come and pray over the sick, but they come as representatives of God to the church from the church, as though the church is praying for them. They're not representatives between God and man. If you want to ask more questions, I had a longer section on that. You can put it on a a blue tearaway slip. But we must not treat our pastors or elders as priests. You can ask me to pray for you, but don't for a second think that I have some sort of special access to God that you don't. So what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is our priest. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, you've got it on the back of your notice sheets. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We said last week that if Leviticus is about the way into God's presence, to enjoy fellowship with him in his house, then that must be all about Jesus. He is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. So just as the sacrifices last week were ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, so the role of priest is ultimately fulfilled by him too. He is our priest, our great high priest. But the story doesn't end there. As Mike alluded to earlier, we are all priests in him. Just as he is our sacrifice and then we are to become living sacrifices, he is our high priest and in him we are to become priests too. Listen to what the word says, uh, Revelation 1, 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Or 1 Peter 2, 4 to 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our priesthood is to offer ourselves to God. And to teach his saving message to the world as Christ's ambassadors and envoys to the world. But just as our sacrifice is secondary, so our priesthood is secondary. Really this passage here in Leviticus is there to teach us about Jesus He is our mediator. He is our priest. This is there to teach us about him. Now, Jesus was not a Levite. He didn't have all these sacrifices, as the book of Hebrews points out. But he was a priest nonetheless. So that means that we approach God through him. He required no sacrifice for his own sin. But he did offer a sacrifice for others for our sin. And the acceptability of the sacrifice is not based on the action of us then as worshippers, but on the obedience of the priest. We have a priest who was perfectly obedient. And that actually means that we can have confidence to come into God's presence. Not because we are worthy, but because Christ, our high priest, is. We can have our daily lives lived as living sacrifices. We can have that accepted, not because we are good, Not because we are sanctified, so to speak, but because he is and then we are in him. We do need a priest, but that priest is Christ, the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice. 
So what happens when you get God's priests, the perfect priests, offering God's sacrifice? Well, we see a picture of it in chapter 9. Let me read you a few verses from there. Chapter 9, we'll see the fire of God's glory. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. And then down to 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. We said all the way through that sacrifices were not an end in themselves. Even the atonement of sin here, we see, is not an end in itself. It was always about meeting with God, fellowship with him. As one commentator puts it, the ritual was not an end in itself, but a means towards the experience of God's presence in glory and the joyful worship that responds to it and God we see here responds to their sacrifice with a glimpse of glory as fire comes out and consumes the sacrifice that they've offered lights the fire on the altar of the burnt offering God reveals himself if you think about it through the bible as a consuming fire Even as he met with Moses in the wilderness, he spoke out of the fire of a burning bush. So here we have a remarkable picture of what happens when you have God's priest offering God's sacrifice. The outcome is that the glory of the Lord is revealed. Fellowship with God is made possible. It's summed up by that blessing that is referred to there by Aaron. We don't have it recorded here, but it's in number six. And again, it's on the back of your notice sheet. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was what all this was about. Fellowship with a gracious God. Seeing his glory as he makes his face shine upon his people. And ours is the same, isn't it, in the New Testament. But again, it's fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Actually, we're all about seeing God's glory, aren't we? Because of our perfect priests 
who's offered his perfect sacrifice. But ours is the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in the Old Testament, this is really a high point. God is dwelling with his people. And the people here are able to approach him in some way. I mean, this is the end, right? Finally, we have a solution. We said last week that the temple was like a little Eden. Eden's restored. Here on the eighth day, you note, we have a new creation. It's a Sunday, resurrection day after all. Although, having said that though, the people haven't made it into the Holy of Holies yet. And it is just a few people, the priests, and... Well, unfortunately, just as Genesis 3 comes after the wonder of creation, you see the fall in Genesis 3, just as the golden calf follows the Ten Commandments, so here we have the horror of Leviticus 10 following the wonder of Leviticus 9. Have a look at Leviticus 10 verses 1 to 11 and see what happens. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified, and before all people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael, And Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your head hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between holy and common, and between unclean and clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken them by Moses. Two sons of Aaron here offer unauthorised fire before the Lord and are killed. A day of celebration turns into tragedy. Now there's some debate over exactly what they did wrong. Some think that it was as they kindled the fire outside the tabernacle. So, you know, God had lit the fire in the tabernacle and here they were bringing fire from outside. Uh, Others think it was that they were drunk as uh, they were celebrating before and came to the Lord drunk, which might be why you get that uh, strange command in the middle that seems not quite to fit, that they shouldn't drink anything. Yet others think it was that they tried to enter the most holy place right at the centre of the tabernacle. They'd not yet received instructions about how to do that. And this incident is revisited in chapter 16 when eventually they do. But whatever it was, the big thing is that it was not commanded by the Lord. That's what you see in verse 1. The chapter before repeated again and again and again as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. But here it is not as the Lord commanded. 
And the same fire of God's glory that burnt up the offering in the last chapter now burns up the sons of Aaron as they rebel against God in their sacrifice. But notice the result is the same. God is glorified before the people. He is sanctified, regarded as holy, though in a more terrifying way here. There was a hint that this was coming. If you look back at chapter 8, 35, you'll notice that they were told that they had to do these sacrifices so that you do not die. It wasn't lest the sacrifice be spoiled, it wasn't lest you get the sack, it was lest you die. And the phrase, lest you die, is repeated more and more times, three times through the chapter. They should not mourn these rebels, lest they die. They were not to leave the tabernacle with their anointing oil on, lest they die. They were not to drink wine or strong drink, lest they die. The stakes here are actually life and death. God is a consuming fire. Consuming their sacrifices when worshipped correctly, but consuming them when worshipped wrongly. But does that mean that there's no hope then? Will this just keep repeating itself? We see a bit more as the story goes on in verse 12 down to 20. Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offering and eat uh, it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offering of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offering of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a Jew forever, as the Lord commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was burnt up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered the sin offerings and their burnt offerings before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Aaron's two surviving sons go into the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. Life must go on. But Moses gives them a priestly offstead. And to his shock and surprise and anger, they fail. Instead of eating the sin offering in the tabernacle as they should have done, they burnt it up. Instead of smearing the blood on the altar, who knows what happened to the blood, but it's gone somewhere. After their brothers have just died for not obeying God's command, they've seemingly been cavalier with God's sacrifices again. <coughs> Moses confronts Aaron's sons, but it's Aaron who stands up to defend them. Basically, Aaron says it would not have been appropriate for us to eat it today. It would not have been appropriate for us to take our share as priests 
on a day when the priests have failed the Lord. And Moses is satisfied with that. And seemingly God is satisfied because they don't get burnt up. Otherwise it would have been a very short-lived solution, wouldn't it, the tabernacle with no priest left. As it is, the sacrifices continue and the sons stay alive. What we do need, though, to stop this happening again, God tells them in 10 and 11, in between, he tells them that they need to keep teaching the difference between right and wrong. They need to keep teaching the distinction between what is clean and unclean. Seemingly what Aaron's deceased sons couldn't do. So God is going to teach us the difference so that we can know what is acceptable to him. Things that are unclean and polluted to him. And they're to teach the people's God's word, a huge role that's really overlooked for the priests. But all of that is next week because we're going to be looking at clean and unclean. But this whole uh, incident is alluded to in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, uh, 28 and 29, again it's on the back of your notice sheets. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. As we close, we need to think about the fact that we as Christians are to offer acceptable worship to God. Because our God is a consuming fire. What does that look like? It looks like a life lived in reverence and awe to God. It's so easy, isn't it, to lose our reverence and awe for God when we haven't got things like this happening all the time. I like C.S. Lewis's image, which he borrows from the Bible, of God as a lion. It's repeated throughout the books of the Narnia Chronicles. He's not a tame lion. There's one point in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan says at one point, uh, hearing about Aslan, is he quite safe? Asked Susan. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. This is our God. We see here that he's not safe, but he's very good. Aaron's son certainly learned that God is not safe, that God cannot just be approached willy-nilly. But does that mean that we're back to where we started with? That we can't really have a personal relationship with God because we're sinful? Well, the answer is that we must approach God through a priest. This passage sets that up as the only model. But our priest is so much superior to these uh, sons of Aaron, even the best of them. If you don't believe me, read the book of Hebrews when you get home. Half the book is written about how superior he is to the Levites, the priests. Jesus brings us with him into the true tabernacle, heaven itself, into the presence of the Father cleansed from our sin and impurity so that as Hebrews 10 puts it we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus brothers and sisters because of Jesus we can approach God we can have a relationship with God because he is our immeasurably greater priest on our own we could have no hope of a personal relationship with God Based on our own track record, on our own righteousness, we would stand no chance. But through Jesus, we can have more than that. We can have confidence to approach God. So let's not stand on our track record, even as Christians. Let's come, let's not come before God in our own righteousness, 
But let's stand on Jesus' righteousness. We need to hear that if we've never come to Jesus. We need to know that we can't come by ourselves. That we need his righteousness. His right relationship with God. But we need to remember that as Christians too. That actually we still need a priest. We still come through him. And we can thank God for that personal relationship with God that's possible because of him. Because of our merciful and great high priest. Amen.